And when we recognise our ability to advocate for others that don't have the same superpowers as us, that's where we can become an ally and advocate for others and inclusion for them. Welcome to Community Good, the podcast that shares powerful lessons to help you navigate the life you want. I'm your host, Marnie Andes. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Liz Wilson, behavioral scientist, organizational transformation expert, and founder of Include Incorporated, who shares more about her journey to working with organizations on inclusion, her eight inclusion needs of all people, and great insights for all of us to live by in our day-to-day interactions with each other. And now, my conversation with Dr. Liz Wilson. Well, thanks, Liz, for joining me. First of all, I have just been so excited to be able to meet you in person. Today was the first time we got to see each other. Yes. And as soon as we sat down, it's like we're being long lost friends talking about things that girlfriends only share to girlfriends they've known for a really long time. I know. We'll see if we, I don't know that we would probably get to that place in this podcast. (laughs) God knows we would go to that place in this (laughs) podcast. But yeah, it's just been great to meet you. And I've been following you now for some time since we connected on LinkedIn. And Mm -hmm. somehow, I don't know how we got introduced, but maybe some similar things, fields of study, whatnot. But, you know, I think we're going to get into a number of things um, already on this podcast. But what I thought would be really good for us to start is... You are um, an expert in inclusion. You work with organizations all over the world strategically to think about what that vision is for them. How did you get started in that work? It kind of happened in the other way around. So I started in organizational transformation. So I was being paid to take an organization from A to B, whatever that was. But it was usually about saving money or making more money. And then when I became more sort of cognizant to discrimination and the impact on different identities and reflected on my own experience, of which I thought I hadn't experienced any kind of inclusion. But really, when you think back, I've got a couple of examples that are quite shocking that I'd normalized. And so I thought, well, if I can move an organization from A to B uh, to make more money or make less money, why can't I do the same with inclusion? Why are we still 208 years away from gender pay equity when I could go into an organization and do it within a few months? Right. Okay. So there's so much there to unpack. And that's what we're going to do, which is what I was really hoping we would be able to do today. So a couple of things. And I thought about that as I was prepping to come into the conversation today, which is we have been navigating this for years. Mm -hmm. We still haven't solved for it. So let's just put that right out there right away. But what I find interesting is that in some way, shape or form, even in organizations, I think we think this is like something new that we're talking about. And so maybe even talking a little bit about your own experience would be really interesting to kick this off, which was you weren't sure about whether or not you'd (laughs) experienced that, but you have. Yeah, exactly. So it was really off the back of seeing someone else being very explicitly discriminated against and saw how they'd normalized it. And I thought, well, that wouldn't happen to me. So I reflected on, okay, so what has happened to me perhaps, even though I naively thought nothing had impacted my career success. But then when I thought back, Now, I will admit this was in the 90s, so we are going back into the 90s, Um, but I just finished my undergraduate degree and I'd acquired one of those cool 
jobs with one of those big four consulting firms and I then found out I was pregnant and I called them and just sort of said, okay, I'm pregnant. And they said, oh, well, we'll have to withdraw the employment offer. And I went, okay, because I thought, okay, fair enough. They can't accommodate a graduate that is pregnant. Now, it felt normal. Like I just took it on board and went, yeah, okay. Whereas, I mean, you just, that's not okay today. Obviously, it's even illegal to do that today. Fast forward, I was maybe seven years ago, the HR director or equivalent of reporting to a CEO. And basically, I realized he only hired me to hit on me because he was sexually harassing me for months and I refused his advances. And when it became clear I wasn't going to accept that any longer, he fired me. Um, so there's another reason. Um, and then another one was I was working as a freelance consultant, working on a huge project for a large government um, organized, well, government uh, agency in Australia. And there was someone else on the team doing exactly the same role as me on the project. And he was earning $800 more a day. Oh, my gosh. And so that's just me and my gender. That's not all of me, but that is just some parts that I dug up. Um, And that does bring us back to the gender pay equity that we've been talking about for years. The suffragettes did a really good job (laughs) of speaking loudly and walking the streets, but it hasn't achieved change. And so that's what I do differently. I actually take it beyond what I nicknamed the cupcakes and celebrations, you know, focusing on the labels and getting everyone in the room to feel good for the day, but rather breaking apart and fixing the system of the organisation. And the reason I choose the organisation is A, well, I know organisations inside out, but B is because I think we all buy from, work from, are educated by, treated by, governed by organisations. So if we can make organisations inclusive, then by default we create an inclusive world. Right. You know what's interesting is I think about organisations that I've worked for and organisations that I think have done this pretty well. I, I, I don't know that I've worked for an organisation that I – that I think to myself, they are doing this phenomenally. Now, some of them that I've worked for were certainly putting themselves on the trajectory to Mm -hmm. be able to do it really well. Um, But then also looking back on some organizations that were doing it so poorly, it was almost, I want to say, like disappointing, but then comical at the same Mm -hmm. point. Like you you just can't believe that organizations like that exist that are still doing it like that. But... Then I step back and I think about the fact that how do you influence that when, you know, I think about people that might be listening that they're like, hey, I don't work in an organization. Thank goodness, because I don't have to have that. But yet their family is an organization or their neighborhood is an organization, which is either creating the good or the bad that they see. Absolutely. So I guess talk about organizational context, but it does apply in society, in the community, in whatever groups you belong to. And what do you see as part of the conversation or the dialogue that you're trying to elicit from people at this point? I'm trying to shift people away focusing on the labels. So really the focus on race or ethnicity is the dominant conversation in the United States for inclusion. Um, In contrast to the rest of the world, race isn't because we don't really refer to race, we refer to ethnicity. 
And then, there's, of course, there's gender, but then there's LGBTQI and there's disability and there's veteran status and there's neurodiversity and there is age and there is, and I could go on, there's mental illness, chronic illnesses, parental responsibilities, carer responsibilities. There's 54 identities. Now, if we're focusing on inclusion one label at a time, uh, is it tens of thousands of years before we get to the 54th identity? But the intersectionalities. So I am a woman. I am a parent and a mother. I'm a grieving parent. I have ADD, mental illness. I'm a survivor of abuse. I'm a survivor of suicide. There is more to me than just my gender. So your gender program isn't really going to include me. Even more, our gender programs are often focused on equipping the label, and in that case gender, to better manage themselves within a non-inclusive environment versus focusing on changing the environment so all genders can thrive. Right. So talk to me more about that because I remember when I first met you and you and I had a chance to have an initial dialogue about all of this, this idea of one part of this isn't the whole person. So... Mm. Help help us break it down of how does how does one start to figure out what are all the things yeah. that are part of them? So I dedicated the last five or six years to this research, so I'm saving everyone a whole heap of time so they don't need to do it themselves. <laughs> so some people may have heard of the term intersectionality. Uh, if you haven't, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s. And it was an academic term to try to explain the compounding effect of identities. And that was specifically in gender plus being black or African-American in the United States, saying that that experience of that person with those two identities is different to someone that is a male and black and is someone that is white and female. So that term then has been used in lots of different research over the years, but there was still a gap on how to operationalize and make it practical to create change that is inclusionary of all intersectionalities. So that's the task I went about doing. And so breaking down all the existing research and identified eight specific needs of all people. So it's the eight inclusion needs of all people, regardless of identity. And so that's how we do it. There's eight of them. And it's a lot easier than 54 times all those possible intersectionalities. Oh, right. Because I what you're so I want to talk about the eight. So we'll get there yeah. in just a moment. But I think about myself because, um, and, and not selfishly, I mean, I'm thinking everybody, you know, on this podcast right now, I would want them to start, you know, start thinking about what are all the the ways in which you think of yourself mm -hmm. and how do you sort of start to put that into perspective for this. So I think about, um, I'm a white woman. Um, I... I, you know, I've had some challenges with some different behaviors um, and different personalities throughout my life, but I, I don't know that I've would think about myself coming from abuse, but I did come from a very rural area of the country. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't exposed to a number of ethnicities growing up, and we were predominantly white where I grew up and um, conservative. I grew up in that kind of. I think my family was one of the few more liberal. Um, thinking uh, families in our area. And then I'm kind of like, you know, thinking about all these other things become my experiences. So, you know, I have an undergraduate, I have a master's degree. I mean, maybe there's some other different experiences, but I wonder if I'm really thinking about myself 
in a full picture? Like, what would you advise me? Like, what else do we need to dig in for me to really think about that? I love that you've highlighted that because I also have an inclusion behavior framework. We're not going to dig into that today, but the first behavioral capability is about self-awareness and recognizing your own identity in the context of, and I call it the community that you're working or living within. So being able to recognize what are my identities and which of those give me what I call our allyship uh, superpowers, or you could use the actual literal term, which is privilege. But unfortunately, the word privilege has been hijacked and used in very negative connotations. So Mm -hmm. let's just focus on um, our superpowers for allyship. And when we recognize our ability to advocate for others that don't have the same Uh, superpowers as us, that's where we can become an ally uh, and advocate for others and inclusion for them. And if I can illustrate with a really simple example, that if there was a black African-American male sitting next to me and it was late at night and we're leaving the recording of a podcast, um, the privilege that he has is that he probably feels safer walking to the car in the dark than I do. And so he could leverage an account and be accountable for allying for me and getting me to the car safely, as an example. Um, but if we were in this podcast and I wanted to make sure his voice was heard, I could leverage my, whether it was my education or my whiteness, and make sure there's space for his representation and voice to be heard. So it's about using what we have to advocate for others of what they don't have. Oh, I think that's a big one for this conversation. I mean, one of the highlights already that I'm hearing, which is the ability for us to leverage what we have mm-hmm. in order to help others move forward. I think that is huge. The, the other thing I think of getting into, and I'll sort of still base it on where I grew up, is, you know, I have the perception, whether it's right or not, I have the perception of my hometown that there are some people because they haven't really potentially navigated outside of that, Mm. that there may be limitations as to how they might think or accept the ways. Now, that's whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but I know that that's a perception that I have because I do think about the fact that you know, had I not gone to college or had I not moved to Denver at some point, had I not done a lot of the things that I did. In fact, I, you know, I even go back to um, my undergrads in secondary education. In the first year that I taught, I taught in Raytown, Missouri, which is one of the first schools sort of outside inner city sort of feed from Kansas City. So most of my students were black. Um, I think at the time we had probably some Latino, but white was not the predominant Mm -hmm. ethnicity at that time in the middle school. And so here I was not having even grown up around an ethnic community. Now I'm teaching and I'm working with parents. And, you know, I really do consider myself an open mind, but I can't help but think that, you know, I was even limited in what I could pull from when I was working in that community. Yeah. So we could go down so many rabbit holes here. I'll jump on the first one being one of the things that I think we're all accountable for. If we are in a non-diverse environment, being whether it's our family, our friendship groups or where we work, where we're just as accountable for our self-awareness, we're also responsible for our social awareness and developing our understanding of difference, of people that are different to us, that have different lived experience, that might think differently, have different beliefs, just learn about it. I'm not asking you to either agree or anything. I'm just asking you to learn and understand about other people. So that's really important for your social awareness. 
Um, in terms of working in different communities, uh, that is about listening. It is about deferring to the the experts that have more lived experience. We can't apply our own expectations over someone else when they haven't had the same lived experience of us. So I think you have to really defer to experts and be open and curious about how you can do things differently to better tailor. Mm-hmm. Finally, in those communities which are more homogenous, uh, more isolated from a diverse environment, um, I think a lot of the fear of inclusion I gave it away, a lot of it's fear, but I think it's because they think they have to give something up in order to include someone else. And that's not true. And I think that's the danger of using that word privilege is that people from those more rural communities go, well, I'm not privileged. You know, I'm underprivileged or I've had struggles. Privilege in the term of inclusion isn't taking away that you may have struggled, that you've got a whole bunch of other things that take away from your ability to thrive. There are just parts of you that might be superpowers that other people might not have. And I just want to help people understand that it's not about giving up. It's not an infinite pie. It's just trying to create an environment where everyone thrives, including you, like Mm -hmm. including whomever you are within your own community. Right. And I think that's what, I mean, I, I appreciate that point because I think, you know, even when I spent time in my last organization, um, having a chance to actually had someone on my team who was incredibly educated around inclusion, had studied that in her master's program, had done a ton of work in um, LA before coming out to Denver and sort of helping with government entities out here. Just the appreciation that I had for just stepping back for a second Mm -hmm. and really thinking about how we can help people you know, elevate their voices. They they have voices already. They they're already doing their jobs and so forth. But how do you help people that potentially aren't getting the opportunities that we might otherwise get, just because of yes what we have going on? And I I mean it is a privilege, and I and I don't know that I ever saw it that way either. And unfortunately, to your point, I do think it's been used as a negative term. Whereas if we really sat back and said, no, where where have you experienced privilege? And instead of necessarily feeling guilty about it, how do you use that to help elevate some Mm -hmm. others as well and dig into it a bit more? Yeah. And so if we then couple that with approaching inclusion from the eight needs, let's use a more rural, more um, homogenic kind of uh, community, is that within your own community, there will be opportunities for inclusion. So learning needs. I want to make sure everyone's learning needs are met so you can thrive. I want to make sure that there are accommodations made and opportunities and support provided to you so you can thrive at school or in college or in the workplace. This isn't dependent on colour of skin or gender or anything else, any of those labels. It is looking at the whole person and try to create an environment where you can literally thrive. Right, right. You know what's – so – I do want to get into the eight. So, in fact, before I before I take us off course, let's, let's <laughs> do that now. Fun. I of know, course fun. <laughs> <laughs> but let's do that now because then we can get into maybe some other parts of it. But walk us through okay. the eight parts. All right. So the first one is access. 
literally think about making sure that people can see, hear and physically access what's being provided. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily someone has to be blind or deaf or in a chair to need access. We all need to see, hear and physically access what's being provided. And that can be anything from reading materials or audio through to access to healthcare, justice, all that kind of stuff. So access. The next one is space. That's about creating a safe psychological and physical space uh, that is created by the physical environment. Um, a little like you probably wouldn't want to hold a corporate event in a plantation. That doesn't feel safe for a whole bunch of identities. Um, okay, so let me make sure that my ADD can stay on track. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pen and a piece of paper if you want to start noting it down. It's okay. Um, then we have opportunity. Now, we've already talked about opportunity. This is mm -hmm. about creating opportunities for people that may not have had those opportunities before. Pretty straightforward. Then we've got representation. Now, representation isn't just about having equal or diverse numbers in the room. It's about having representative numbers in the room. So is it representative of the environment that you're working or living in proportionately? And is it representative by the amount of airtime the peace person gets, the pay they get, the respect they get in the room? That's about representation. Then we have allowance. Uh, so allowance is attached to what people may have heard legally in things like the ADA, which is reasonable adjustments. I'd like to take away the word reasonable and let's just focus on accommodating people's needs so they can thrive at work, whether it's the stand-up desk or if it's flexible working or part-time work, whatever it might be, allowances for people. Um, what's next? Language. How many are we up to now? We're, we're at six now. <laughs> okay. Language is twofold. We've got making sure that we have respectful, non-discriminatory language, non-gendered language, those kinds of things, as well as keeping language simple and clean and free of acronyms and complex language that's unnecessary so that all people can understand. Then, of course, there's the other things like translators and transcriptions and mm -hmm. um, interpretations for different languages. Then we have respect. Respect is about recognising that certain identities at certain periods of time might be impacted by external uh, events that might be occurring. Um, so whether that's changes in legislation, protests that might be going on, um, things that are really negatively impacting people's identity, but also the respect of the history of certain identities as well. So whether it's related to slavery or genocide or historical events, that while they may not have happened to that individual and that identity, it kind of carries with them as part of their lived experience. Um, and so we just accommodate around that in what we do. And then finally, support. Now, support is the final one, and it's often when I get to seven, they're kind of panicking, thinking, yes, but I provide support programs for people with special needs. Don't worry, we haven't missed them. But letting go of the labels doesn't mean I'm letting go of providing additional support. So the additional support is providing that step up to create equitable outcomes. I'm not a tall person. If there was something at the top of a cupboard, you'd give me a step ladder so I could reach it. It's exactly that. You provide the support so that I have the equal and equitable opportunity to achieve what I can in context with someone that's taller than me. Okay. Well, you made it through. You got all eight. <laughs> I've noted them because I want to be able to yeah. dig into some of these. But I, I want to start here because this is what hit me when you were actually explaining all eight of these, which is I, I want to get your opinion on this. Where If there was a continuum of... This is um, incredibly straightforward to do, 
it just sort of takes these kinds of approaches, that kind of thing to we've made this incredibly hard or harder than it needs to be. Like, where are we at? Because I I don't even I have my own opinions of, of organizations I've worked with and where I've been and so forth. But where are you at on that? The label approach or the scattergun approach or the I call it the dates approach. I It's lost sight of seeing it as an organizational transformation. This isn't about just celebrating different identities. So if we just step away from trying to focus on one label at a time, which if you were doing a transformation of an organization and you found there were 10 different change programs going on, all trying to achieve the same outcome, you'd quickly go, well, that's nuts. Let's combine them all into an enterprise change because they're trying to achieve the same thing. It reduces change fatigue, reduces cost, reduces duplication of effort. The list goes on. That's exactly what I'm saying to do. Consolidate the efforts. You can keep your employee reference groups or resource groups, whatever they're called in your organization, for camaraderie. They can be part of your working groups to contribute to the strategic outcomes. But you need to take it at a strategic level and approach it like it's an organizational change program. And then it becomes simple. You create some objectives, some measures. I know what the indicators are for lead change. So what I'm going to do to make sure I get an inclusive outcome instead of just measuring does everyone feel like they belong? Because if they say no, what does that tell you? Mm -hmm. Nothing. So identifying what it actually is and then strategically change it. It's, I mean, to me, it's so simple. And I know it's not necessarily that simple. Um, to others. But if you take a more planned and action-oriented approach rather than trying to jump to an end state that you're never going to get because, oh, here's the other thing. So many programs are trying to change people's beliefs. Like, I'm going to put you in a four-hour training program and I'm going to change your beliefs about inclusion, that you should value other people more than you value yourself, so to speak. Well, you can't change people's beliefs, firstly, because that's not inclusive. Um and if it's taken you 40-odd years, let's say, to develop those beliefs, they're not going to be changed in four hours. That's just a waste of money and time. The behavioral science approach, so that's the doctor of the Liz bit mm-hmm. we're talking about, it's about behavioral economics. What are the systems we can change that require you to press the inclusion button, I call it? The systems and processes that regardless of your beliefs, that if you press that inclusion button is the only way for you to succeed in the organization. So consequently, you're creating inclusive outcomes for other people, but you're also succeeding because you're complying with the organization's expectations for inclusion. And the more you make people do a process or a system or a decision, it becomes a habit. Habits become behaviors and behaviors form an organizational culture. So I don't like to admit that the behavioral scientist in me realizes that it's actually not about changing behavior, it's about changing the systems to manipulate a difference in Mm -hmm. the way people act and make decisions. You know, I've had at least two guests that in some way, shape, or form, we have talked about systems that are requiring changes in order for these things to happen. And I'm totally on board with what you just described, especially from an organizational. If you need to step back and just say, listen, these things do matter to you. And instead of taking them from an approach of tell people what you want them to know, it's how do you actually do certain things so that people start to... Um, embrace them as their own. Because, I mean, we also know that people typically tend to do things if they believe it's their own idea, mm-hmm. right? People don't usually want to do things if someone said, you yeah. should really do that instead of this. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you make such a good <laughs> point because 
a lot of people that do the same kind of work as me, well, at least in the diversity space, I don't work in diversity. I really like to make sure people understand that I work in inclusion transformation. I don't focus on labels. I focus on transforming the way your organization makes inclusive decisions and ways of working. But you'll often find the approach is more of an activist approach. They bring their own lived experience to the conversation and it can come across as I've been told by my clients that they feel guilty at the end of the conversation or they feel like they're getting in trouble. That won't affect change. If you're implementing any, if you're putting a new technology in in your organization, a new software, and you just told everyone, well, the way you're doing it is terrible, so you've just got to do it this way. Well, that won't change anyone. They will, out of resentment, push back and go, no, I like the way that I currently do it. That's not how you change the way people think and act. You have to approach a messaging that's what's in it for me. And if I can convince there's something in, in inclusion for you, then you're going to want it for yourself. And if you want it for yourself, then you're going to have to be inclusive of others as well. And no matter who you are, you have the eight inclusion needs. I think about that for, you know, if we were to step back, talk a little bit about what I mentioned in the beginning is not just even an organization, right? But how you think about having conversations like this with a family member or a, a group within the family or a neighborhood. I mean, what's what has been your approach? I mean, like even your conversations, I can't even imagine. I'm trying to imagine hanging out with Liz at a barbecue <laughs> in the summer and we're thinking like, okay, what are we going to talk about? I mean, you've got to be hearing this stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. Where, What does your influence look like when you hear people either talking about it in a certain way or you're thinking, oh my gosh. Yeah. It depends on the environment. So if I'm being paid, <laughs> um, I can be a little more assertive, but it's always done with an intent of learning. And so if someone did something that was offensive or really discriminatory, I would say something like, what did you mean by that? Without any judgment, it would just create them an opportunity to think about what they just said and what they meant by that. In most cases, that question is super powerful for holding people to account for their non-inclusive thinking and speaking about others. Um, I was just at a barbecue and someone said, what's this word woke mean to you? And it's interesting, they, they were trying to goad me. But it's not kind of how I bite. And I'm just like, well, I don't use the term. Others do, but I actually don't use the term. And that was the end of the conversation. Or for instance, on my podcast, you'll get comments. I think there was one. So one of my friends, Patrice, uh, they identify as transgender male non-binary amongst other things. And so in the description of the podcast, because I talk to people about mm -hmm. their lived experience and the commentary is, you can't be both. How can you be transgender male and non-binary? And so rather than going back with any kind of accusation or any kind of attack, it's just gender expression and gender identity are two different things and how people identify for themselves is up to them. Mm -hmm. And that's all I say. That's all I need to say. You know what's been interesting, though, that you even giving that example, I'm glad you did because I think that's um, – I get a sense that that's where there is some confusion for people. And I, and I don't actually believe that it has anything to do with whether or not they know someone or whether or not they've experienced it firsthand. But there's 
there's even just some confusion of, well, what does that mean non-binary? And what does that mean if they're they're more, um, you know, they're more associated to they, they versus they and them versus he, mm-hmm. she, or, you know. And I'll share this. I'll share this. I wrote this about this. I think it's been a little over a year ago. It may have even been a couple of years ago. But I remember I was – it wasn't a barbecue, but I was actually at a um, baseball game watching my older son play. And I heard a conversation going on. And uh, this was the moment in time where so many of us were having – sons now that we're at the age that we're going to start driving. And someone was sharing it, I think, lighthearted. But I also think it was interesting how far they took the conversation, which was they had stated that they were going to um, talk to their insurance company and share that their son related more to she, her, in order to get their premiums reduced. Because on paper, males usually are a higher ticket item on a car insurance policy than than a girl is. And while I know in way in which the conversation was going that it was to be comical and somewhat lighthearted, there were some pretty mm. substantial undercurrents with all of that. And so I'm just thinking it's it's not necessarily for an expert like you to have to go around and correct all of our problems in our communities, but mm. to even engage in that conversation, it really just it sort of froze me because I thought, how, where am I going to start this conversation? Do I have the energy for this conversation? Is the in the right environment to have mm-hmm. this conversation? Yeah, you've got to be always hit with navigating that all the time, right? Always navigating it. So you you do have to make decisions. If you're in my house, you're playing by Liz's rules. Right. <laughs> um, I don't approach inclusion with anger. There is no, I, that's just not me at all in anything. So it'll always be an open and friendly and a learning experience. Um, and I'll always be there to try to learn from other people's points of view as well. Um, but I do make it very clear that this is who I am and these are the expectations for inclusion that I have. So on the most part, people are going to act inclusive around me because I make it clear as an really accountable ally, that I'm clear this is this is my expectation for others around me. And so people do, by default, tend to monitor their own behaviours. That's a really good way to start influencing inclusion. Aside from that, you do pick your battles. I mean, I'm reflecting back to another barbecue back in Australia, and our Australia Day uh, is really grounded in some terrible experiences for our Indigenous populations. Uh, The date that was chosen was quite literally the date that an English explorer plants a flag and says, no humans live on this land, for lack of a better explanation. There's much more to it. And then went aside and killed everybody. So you can imagine that's not a great experience for our Indigenous population to have the day that's a public national holiday that people celebrate with barbecues and drinking and celebrations and people have refused to move the date in, you know, commiseration, I guess, to help mourn with Indigenous populations, regardless that that date was only determined in 1994. It wasn't a public holiday before then. That said, so I'll go to a barbecue because it's a public holiday, but if there are they know if there are Australian flags and there's all this kind of, I call it bogan, I guess he'd kind of call it redneck, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of 
I don't, I don't, I can't explain it, but it just doesn't feel healthy. Mm -hmm. I'll remove myself from the situation because it's really uncomfortable. Well, and I think, well, you, so you're able to step back and actually see that. And I would say that this has probably been the journey that I've been on for probably the last decade. I, 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 would I love to say that I was an enlightened person and that I, that I kind of thought about all these things when I was in my early 20s or 30? No, I didn't. So I admittedly say I've been on this journey for the last 10 years. And one of the things that I've tried really hard to do, and I, I, I do this with my coaching clients as well, which is if you could just step back, I mean, truly try to remove judgment at this point. And sometimes I always when I hear people say, like, look at it objectively, even sometimes that's hard for people to make the connection. Too conceptual. Yeah, but it's almost like, can you can you somewhat remove yourself and watch it playing out like a play or a movie? And can you can you somehow see some different angles and some different ways in which people might not feel great about that situation? Mm-hmm. And likewise, why other people don't potentially see anything wrong with yeah. it. And, you know, someone made a really good point, and it was only in the context of my current lived experience of something that I'm going through at the moment. They said, it's something about making sure you're flexing to the person with the greater need. So it was meaning that in that situation, if someone has a greater need, then you flex to that. If they, if someone was deaf, you would make sure you were making sure in that environment you had subtitles or a sign language interpreter because that's the greater need. You wouldn't say, well, seven of us can hear, so bad luck to you. Mm-hmm. Perfect example. Um, so the same would apply to any other situation for an inclusion need. If it's a need versus a preference, the need trumps the preference. Mm-hmm. I there's so much work to do around all of this. And I think about um, I actually have a uh, distant cousin who now works at the Capitol. She supports um, one of our new elected state representatives. And um, this year, Colorado finally made accommodations for wheelchairs in the state Capitol because we finally have a representative who is in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. That's what prompted it. Yeah. And I use this example all the time. We're at a point now that if there was a building and it had a sign out the front, whites only, well, that just, you couldn't get away with that. There'd be an uproar, right? That's just unacceptable. So why would it be unacceptable that someone in a wheelchair could be left outside because they can't get up the stairs? Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing. It's completely unacceptable. And that stands true for every identity. Right. You shouldn't be left outside. Unless you're underage and it's a bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's certain like legal yes. ramifications, right? And I think that's where, um, I mean, we're having fun with that part, right? But I look at that and go, you know, is it is it too much to ask everyone to just put differences aside to to say? Maybe you were raised a certain way or subtly shared, you know, dislikes around certain groups or whatnot. But I, I think about there's there's so much to like about people that this this still this fact that we are navigating a system in which people are either preventing others from moving forward, having really distinct 
um, opinions about what that means or what that doesn't mean. When I think about the trans population and some of the you know issues that they're having to navigate, and I'm not even being comprehensive at this point. I'm just showcasing a few things here, right, on the show. But I'm just, I, I mean, I wonder, like, where do we get to the heart of the human being just saying, does it matter that we're different? That we have more in common than we have that is different. We often assign labels to people. So we'll look at someone and go, they're different to me, and we will find the loudest label to us and assign it to them, whether it's the color of their skin, their accent, a bunch of other things, right, like their physical abilities, so on and so forth. But that might not be really their whole person. Once you actually identify and meet the person, get to know them, you realize, oh, they've got so much lived experience that's similar to mine. Go in search of the commonality. Don't assume and apply your own label to other people's identity. That's super important. Um, And I think the other part is that I think someone called it the, they don't call it the label, I call it, but it's the sort of oppression Olympics. You know, which one's more important than the other? They're all important. Someone of colour, someone in a chair, equally important to get in the room, for instance. I don't think it's too much to ask. Now, one of the things around I've learned since being here in the States is that human rights has been politicised. So I've not experienced that elsewhere. I mean, I've worked extensively across the whole of Asia Pacific, including Japan, across into Europe, and they don't politicise it. They don't say it's let's call it the left and the right. That's probably the easiest way to use it because that's a Mm -hmm. common phrase for politics across the globe. It's not a left or right thing. It just is. It's human rights. And in the States, one of the problems is the right has politicised human rights, but then in response, so is the left. And it's making you divide yourself and having to decide, do I care about other people or am I more comfortable staying in my political realm. Mm -hmm. Finally, I want to say is in that if you've grown up somewhere in an environment with your family or your friends or in your workplaces where you haven't necessarily been overly inclusive and you're just starting to realize that, you can choose one or two ways to go. You can go, no, I'm betting down in this. This is me. I'm too old. It's too late. Maybe secretly ashamed of some of the stuff I've said and done. Too late. This is me and this is my identity and how I'm going to approach inclusion from here on out. I need to say that I learn about inclusion every day. I get better every day. I am better today than I was yesterday at inclusion. I will continue to get it wrong and I will continue to improve. There are things I look back on and decisions and actions and work that I did that wasn't inclusive, that I know that might have made it still more difficult for people, put barriers in place. And if I think back, some of them I'm kind of ashamed of. But that doesn't mean I can't be better tomorrow. And I want everyone to uh, approach inclusion that way. I think that's a fantastic message. I mean, I I get the benefit of sitting in this room with you and learning that and being better than I was yesterday. And I think about the reason why I shared that journey that I've been on for the last 10 years, because I know there's things that I have done or haven't done, quite frankly. But I, I love that message for people because I think it's so important for people to hear. And I will add this piece to it, which is you're not too old to decide that you're going to do this thing. You're not too old to decide 
that, you know, really at the end of the day, if, we, if you know, I'll maybe go into a spiritual side, which is if we have this one lifetime, and if the goal of this lifetime is to lift our, live our best life, our most enjoyable life, whatever that looks like, and if you want it that much for yourself, wanting it for others is equally powerful. But how much more joyous is your own life if you don't have hate in it? Right. Just literally love everyone, want the best for everyone. That is living a whole and purposeful life. Absolutely. I just gave myself goosebumps. I know. You actually were giving me goosebumps when you were already talking about it, which, I mean, I I know you and I, when we first met, we talked for a long time and just got to know each other, and I would love to continue conversations. But I, um, I would love to transition into the part of my program where I ask everyone who joins my show mm-hmm. to share a general life lesson story that's had an incredible impact on your own life with the audience. Right. Pressure's on. Okay. So (laughs) I will share, it's just a little snippet, live with intention. So I have a, a few tattoos, but I have the first tattoo I ever got is on the inside of my left arm and it says live with intention. And it was when I found myself, I kept getting swept up in my career by my ego that I would work for someone and they'd say, we love you, you're amazing, can you come and do this? And I'd be flattered and go, okay. And I kept finding that I was then bending to other people's intentions for me, not my own, not living my purpose, living someone else's. And so once I tattooed it on my arm, it was obviously a very physical reminder to make choices that weren't fueled by ego or someone else's intentions, but were built on my intentions my purpose, and in my best interest. Oh, I love that. That's a great, great lesson for everyone to hear. Well, Liz, I want to continue having conversations with you. I've learned a ton from you. I know you and I could do some incredible work together too. But for now, (laughs) if people want to follow you, find you, connect with you, even listen to your own podcast, could you just share some information so that people can do that? Absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm really active on LinkedIn. So Dr. Liz Wilson. I do have a podcast. It's called Include with Dr. Liz. Excuse me. And Susan, season one is approaching the end. And I've actually got someone interviewing me on this week's podcast. Oh, interesting. So that's a bit of a change of seats. Um, And then finally, my company is called Include Inc. And we work globally on transforming organizations to be more inclusive. Well, I am so glad that I met you. I'm so glad you're in the city together where we can get together and continue to connect. And thank you so much for taking time on the podcast today. Likewise. Absolute pleasure. 